y'all. Thanks for listening to Killer Queens. Or KQ if you're nasty. Welcome to the show where two 90s loving country chicks gab about true crime and tell each other to talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I'm Torella. And I'm Tori. And we're sisters who have always loved true crime and decided to turn that obsession into a show with a light take on the topic. Kind of like diet true crime, it's all the flavor and fewer calories. Mm. Now with our show, you'll get true crime, 90s nostalgia, and a few four-letter words sprinkled in. Because I always say that Polly Pockets and true crime go together like peas and carrots. Be sure to check out our case submission form on our website at killerqueenspodcast.com and follow us on social media and YouTube. Now grab your Surge, your 3D Cool Ranch Doritos, and your kitten surprise, and let's get into the episode. This episode contains discussion of sexual assault, murder, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. Between the years of 1993 and 2014, five young women between the ages of 16 and 37 disappeared in Humboldt County, California. Unlike the large majority of missing persons cases, these five have not been solved. While not a lot of the cases are believed to be connected, the five women we grouped together due to the suspicious circumstances of their disappearance and the lack of answers in this case. The five women known as the Humboldt Five are still either missing or presumed dead with very little evidence and no resolutions. What happened to the Humboldt Five? Hey, you guys, welcome to Killer Queens. If you've never been here before, we want to give you just a little information about how the show is set up and what it's meant to accomplish. If you have been here before, welcome back. You can just use that handy skip ahead feature here if you want to. We want to give a message to friends and family of the victims. We know that there may be someone involved in the case who might listen one day, and we want you to know that our intention is to only bring awareness to this case. And while we do use personal stories in some instances and our own humor in order to tell the story in a way that listeners can relate, we have the utmost respect for victims and their families. We created Killer Queens to be a place where we can have open discussions about cases just like you would with friends. We are not investigators. We use information that is available to the public, such as documentaries, case files, and media coverage. Using this information, we intend to tell the story of what happened in each case that we cover. Now, will you agree with our interpretations or conclusions of each case? Well, heck no. Mm-mm. We each approach cases from different perspectives, life experiences, and beliefs that we already have in place. And sometimes these differences are slight, yet they can be wide enough to cause divide and upset some of those listening. We do our best to present the facts as we find them in our research, but we do bring our own perspectives to the case. We understand that you will too. We want you to know that this is a safe space to discuss differences and opinions in a civilized manner. Our style may not be your personal preference, and if that's the case, we know you'll be able to find one of the many other shows out there to tell the story the way you want to hear it. We can be grown-ups about it if you can. Now, if we are your cup of tea and you want even more KQ, you can join our Patreon and get access to our entire catalog of episodes ad-free and access to bonus episodes too. And I'll give you just a little hint if you're an ad skipper, um, but you still want the deals that we have from our sponsors each week, you can scroll down to the show notes and see what coupons we have available for you right down there. But you didn't hear it from us. Mm -mm, mm -mm, That's a pro tip, but I'll deny ever sharing it. Right. So all that being said, let's get into the story. All right, you guys, uh, we got another unsolved one here. Rough stuff. It's rough stuff. It Um, is rough stuff. Yeah, we want to give a Hey Girl thanks to Jordan for requesting this case and a Hey Girl thanks to Madison for writing it up. 
Thank you, guys. Thank you. We love you. Um, all right. So let's talk about Humboldt County. Humboldt County sits in Northern California and is home to a large portion of the coastal Redwoods Forest. It's about 250 miles north of San Francisco and is largely made up of dense forest. In 2021, Humboldt County had a population of just over 136,000, with a lot of those people being college students um, or maybe people from out of state and those looking for a more low-key life. So this is like an area where people kind of breeze in and breeze out, you know, come stay for a while, do some things, and then move on. It's not like necessarily, you don't like put down roots necessarily in Humboldt County. They're breezy. They're breezy. Yep. There's an area in Humboldt County called Alder Point, which is often referred to as Murder Mountain. We don't like that. Ominous at best. Yeah. It's like if you're like, you want to go for a hike? Where? Uh, We're going to go up to Murder Mountain. Be like, "Mm, no. Uh, Yeah. I think I want to stay, steer clear of Murder Mountain. Is there like a um a stay alive mountain? I'll do that one, maybe. It's like those terrible, or maybe I don't know, like a not another teen movie or like a scary movie type of thing where it's like you've got these three doors, right? And it's like choose this one if you want to live, choose this one if you want to be harmed, and choose this one if you want to die. And it's like I think I'm gonna go with that one. Yeah, exactly. It got its name after a couple, James and Susan Carson, went on a murder spree in the early 80s. This area is also known for its heavy black market marijuana production. Since the 70s, the area has been a hotspot for illicit marijuana production because of how isolated it is. Since then, the area's booming economy for marijuana and free-spirited reputation has attracted more and more people to the Humboldt County area. Humboldt County also lies within an area known as the Emerald Triangle. So along with two other counties, Humboldt completes an upside-down triangle that makes up the largest cannabis-producing region. As the market for marijuana grew and the land was steadily available, the need for workers on the marijuana farms also grew. And many of these workers came from Humboldt State University, particularly in the summer. Trimming the marijuana bud seemed like a pretty easy way for college kids to make money, but there were stories of abuse that came along with it. Some said that they would have to perform oral sex on their bosses just to get paid. That's not good. Why? No, it's not good. That's bad. Mm -mm. Yep. While others said that they were offered more money to trim buds topless. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? Exploiting workers is what we're doing Mm -hmm. here. There was even a story that two growers began having a sexual relationship with one of their trimmers. Not wanting her to run away, they locked her inside of a large toolbox. What? Why? So, I thought, you know, and sometimes we have to say things that we didn't think we'd say out loud. So, I didn't think I ever had to say out loud to anybody any person at all, we don't lock people in toolboxes, even if you don't want them to run away. Sure. Still not okay. 
No, it's never okay. Honestly, Mm-mm, doesn't matter how okay. badly yeah. you don't want them to run away. Just don't do it. It's like, hey, don't please don't lock people in toolboxes. And they're like, but what? But but I, but what if she ran away? Right. Still no. The answer is still no. Yeah. Uh, though not all of these stories are verified, women who've had experience with uh, working within the Emerald Triangle in the marijuana business didn't, of course, often report abuse or assaults to police. These things were committed during the harvesting and production of illicit drugs. So the police are just like either not going to listen to them or they're like, well, then you're in trouble. Like, right. You just told me you were doing something that was illegal. So obviously they're not really in a great position to be able to report these things. Some of these women have even reported that they've been drugged and raped with many rumors and accusations of human trafficking. Scary, man. This is literally like the scariest triangle outside of the Bermuda Triangle, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it might even be scarier. It's a lot of stuff going on in this triangle here. Mm-hmm. With the increased population and many of the people being transient with no familial or significant connections to the community, it's not abnormal for people to be reported missing. Humboldt County has the highest per capita number of missing people in the state of California. And I read somewhere that it's like, dang, I forget the number now, the ratio, it was like double or triple the amount of missing persons cases anywhere else in California. It's like so concentrated. While a large number of these people are located, it still remains that people seem to disappear rather frequently in this area, whether temporarily or permanently. So now we're going to talk about Jennifer Marie Wilmer. She was born on April 13th, 1972 and grew up in Long Island, New York. She had three siblings and was described by her brother as having, quote, a restless, adventurous spirit. Her mother, also named Susan, said that Jennifer wasn't afraid to question authority. In elementary school, she'd yell at the nuns when they picked on students who didn't know the answers. Susan remembered that Jennifer once asked to host her own Halloween party because she wanted to invite all the classmates who weren't invited to another classmate's Halloween party. That is so precious. She wants everybody to be included. She was not okay with people being treated unfairly. Mm -mm. What a sweetheart. I know. She attended high school in Manhasset at the private St. Mary's High School. Jennifer was a very good student. She earned a full scholarship to St. John's University in New York City. Jennifer attended the research university for just one semester before dropping out. She told her mother, Susan, that she wanted to try to make it on her own and left the East Coast for sunny California. 20-year-old Jennifer ended up in Arcata, California, in the county of Humboldt in 1992. The town was about 200 miles north of San Francisco. Arcata was described as, quote, a haven for postmodern hippies. Jennifer intended to register and enroll in classes at the College of the Redwoods in nearby Eureka, but unfortunately, she was too late doing that. So she was still intent on finding her place on the West Coast, and she began waitressing in the area and making friends. She spent a lot of time hanging out in the Arcata Plaza, where many other young people performed street acts, met new people, and just hung out. The area had a heavy community of people kind of coming and going, and many people, like Jennifer, were looking to find something in their life. Most of those who frequented the plaza earned a nickname, and Jennifer quickly became known as Jade. 
She was living in a rented house with roommates and seemed to be enjoying herself for the most part. She remained in contact with her family and Susan and her mother felt like Jennifer would be ready to come home soon. Because even though Jennifer was happy to be in California and she was meeting new friends, she was suffering from depression and she had some difficulty being away from home. In the summer of 93, the roommate that Jennifer was staying with told her that she had to, quote, bail the scene and she was leaving. So Jennifer didn't have anywhere to go and she was jobless at the time. So Jennifer moved in with her boyfriend, Tro Patterson. Tro was a local in the area and he lived in a rental house in Hawkins Bar, California with three roommates. The roommates were Opie, Mingo, and Rebecca. Feel like you got Tro, Opie, Mingo, and there's Rebecca. Yeah, and then Rebecca. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> hi, I'm Tro. I'm Opie. I'm Mingo. I'm Rebecca. It's like Egg from Arrested Development. <laughs> Go talk or to Anne. Egg. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. Anyway, yes, and Rebecca. And I'm sure that she was amazing, but it's just with all of those like very, very unique names, and then you've got Rebecca. It's like, oh well. So Jennifer was accepting welfare at the time, and she was actively actively looking for a job. A friend told her that there was a farm not far down the road that wasn't currently looking for any help, but they probably would be soon. And they suggested that Jennifer go down there and introduce herself. So there are two conflicting stories as to where and what Jennifer was last seen doing or going to. One person said that Jennifer was last seen leaving her home to head to a travel agency to pick up a one-way ticket um, for to fly back home that her mother had purchased. And she, the thing is, like, she wasn't seen at the travel agency. And Susan confirmed that she did purchase her daughter the plane ticket for New York, but Jennifer never picked it up. The other report is that Jennifer left her home around 7.30 a.m. on Monday, September 13th, 1993, and was seen hitchhiking in the area. She was looking for a ride to the farm that her friend had mentioned, which was reportedly about nine and a half miles northwest of the house that Jennifer was living in. This was, this is the report that is most often found when researching Jennifer's disappearance. When Jennifer left, though, she did leave a handwritten note for her roommates, and it said, bye, everybody. Went to my first day at the farm. Wish me luck. Good luck to you, Mingo, and see you in a few months. If somebody could give food to the kitten as needed, I'd appreciate it. Hopefully, I'll see you folks later. And there's a heart, which is a less than sign and a three, and it's Jade. Mm -hmm. So six days later, on September 19th, Susan still hadn't heard from her daughter and was extremely concerned. Jennifer's boyfriend, Tro, called Susan to tell her that Jennifer was missing, and Susan said that at that point, she knew that her daughter wasn't alive anymore. She frantically called the local police and immediately FedExed a photo of Jennifer to them. Unfortunately, it seemed as though the police were not concerned right from the get-go. Martin Ryan, the chief of the California Bureau of Investigation, said that Jennifer was a, quote, walk away and that there was no evidence to indicate foul play. And it just seemed as though the local police felt the exact same way. Nobody really cared. They weren't very worried. Yeah, and but if she left a note that says, hey, I'm going, went to my first day at the farm, wish me luck. She says that's where she's going. She's going to this farm. Go to the farm and ask some questions. Right. Did she ever make it there? Because if she never made it there, and that's where she told people she was immediately headed, then we've got a problem. Right, exactly. And it doesn't say at all like, hey, because she she made a point to leave the note, right? If she was just going to leave of her own volition, wouldn't she have said that in the note? 
Right. Like, hey, guys, I'm Audi 5000. Catch you on the flip side. Maybe we'll see each other again one day if I pass back through. Like, yeah, yeah. exactly. There's no and need she to said, be like, I mean, she says, I'll see you in a few months. Like, well, she says it to that guy, Mingo, because I guess he was going somewhere. But like, that that's what I got from it. Like, she was she made a point mm-hmm. to be like, good luck to you, Mingo, and see you in a few months. Yeah, that's If true. somebody could, she wasn't like, see y'all in a few months. Right, yeah, because if she's going to work at the farm, it's nine and a half miles away from the house. So she's just letting people know that this day. But then she does sign it. Hopefully, I'll see you you folks later. Does that mean like later in the day? Yeah, I don't know. Do you, did people, did people live on the farm if they worked there? I didn't get that necessarily. I don't know. It seemed like it was just a, like it was a job that you just like went to, like regular. Maybe some people did stay there. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The whole thing's weird. But like for it to be like, for the police to be like, eh, well, who cares? She walked away. Yeah, exactly. They just didn't really care very much. And also it's not like she was the type of person who regularly lost contact with her family. And let me say, people who that's their lifestyle, they deserve to be found too. Thank you very much. But they don't have a history of like, oh yeah, we'll go two or three years without hearing from her and then she'll pop back up. Right. That's not what's happening here. So she says she was going to the farm and if she never made it there, then something's going on. Well, yeah. And her boyfriend was concerned and called Susan to be like, hey, she's missing. Wouldn't you think that he would know if she was like, yeah, I'm just going to go live on the farm, see you when I see you? Right, exactly, yeah. So that says she didn't come home for several days or something, and he's like, what's going on? Yeah, he was worried. Yeah. So obviously Susan is frustrated, so she contacts the Nassau County Police, um, who were the local police um, department to her in New York. And the detective um, that she spoke to checked the National Crime or Criminal Information Center and didn't see Jennifer's name anywhere. So it appeared that she hadn't been entered into the system by the police in Humboldt County. The Nassau County detective filed the missing persons report, convinced that nobody was looking for Jennifer in California. Susan and her husband, Fred, traveled across the country to look for her. So when Susan and Fred arrived in California, they met with Jennifer's roommates who seemed equally concerned. Jennifer had left all of her belongings behind. She left her ID, she left her clothes, her address book, Bible, bank card, and sleeping bag. And it seemed pretty clear that Jennifer hadn't intended on being gone for an extended period of time. Unfortunately, when Susan and Fred met with police, Susan felt that they remained extremely nonchalant. So days passed that turned into weeks, turned into months, and then years. In 1998, a truck driver from Arcata walked into the local sheriff's department carrying a plastic bag containing a severed breast. (sighs) Um... That's not an item we carry around with us, sir. Not even an item you just have, you know? Like, that's that's weird. Let's not do... Again, another thing you shouldn't have to say, but, like, don't... But don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. So he confessed to killing four women, specifically hitchhikers, dating back to 1997. But he did not admit to Jennifer's murder, and he had an alibi which excluded him. Also, in 1998, a young woman signed into an abortion clinic with the name Jennifer Wilmer, 
And it was found that that young woman was actually a 14-year-old girl who'd used Jennifer's name as an alias after seeing it on a missing persons poster. I mean, I understand why you might want to use an alias doing something like that. But not a missing girl's name <sighs> that pe- parents that. are going to get excited yeah, about. Exactly. And- like, I, I mean, this is 14-year-old. She's not thinking through the consequences, I'm sure. But like, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So as years passed, tips became less and less frequent and the case grew cold and Jennifer was never seen again. I just, oh, it's so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have five of these to do, so buckle up. Karen Marie Mitchell was born on, oh, November 11th, 1980. Her parent, that story's birthday as well, but. Not the year, later. but the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, her parents divorced shortly after her birth, and Karen grew up in Whittier, California, with her mother, Mary Casper, and her brother. At the age of 13, Karen moved to Eureka, California, which lies in Humboldt County, to live with her aunt and uncle, Annie and Bill Casper. Karen's mother believed that Eureka would be a safer place for Karen to live because she's a teenage girl at this time. On holidays and school breaks, Karen would go back to Whittier to spend time with her mother and brother. Karen's friends at school said they were all really impressed by her maturity when she first joined their class at Winship Middle School. She wasn't from the small city of Eureka and seemed to just know a bit more about the world than the rest of her classmates did. Um, It was a rural town, so, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, we've had a lot of learning to do growing up out in the middle of nowhere. Totally, (laughs) There's just some stuff that you're just like, is this, I didn't know that was real life. Like, I just thought that was movies. (laughs) Exactly, yes. Um, So she was a little more cultured, would you say? Worldly, Yeah. yeah. One of Karen's best friends, Megan Bowser, said that Karen could always make her laugh. When Megan left Eureka to visit her aunt and uncle in the summer, she and Karen would exchange letters like pen pals. I love that. It's so fun. I love a pen pal. I know. It's so exciting to get mail, too. That's not like just boring bills and whatever. Mm-hmm. I found when I was looking for pictures for your birthday social media post, um, I had this box of like old scrapbooking stuff and like some old photo albums and stuff. And I have a bunch of notes that Michelle and I would write back to and forth to each other in eighth grade. Like all the notes that. that we would pass and like, you know, fold up and fold stuff. it. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. I remember that. It was so fun. I didn't open them up and read them yet, but I'm sure they're very interesting. Like, oh my God, oh, I yes. like this boy. Oh my God. He looked at me. <laughs> he asked me what time it was today. Yeah. I love it. She said that that was how she and Karen really grew close. The two remained good friends as they graduated to Eureka High School, talking about boys, skipping school occasionally, and going camping with friends and family. Karen's mom described her as warm, funny, loving, and full of compassion. She said, quote, she just cared for everybody, everything. If it was a person or a plant or a bug or a tree, Karen cared about it. So sweet. Yes. So she decided she wanted to graduate high school a year early so she could start college and begin studying environmental sciences. Her aunt said that she was an A student uh, who was, quote, her own person, very vivacious, very strong, very smart. She was opinionated, but she had an agenda and she wanted to help change the world. Just before her disappearance, Karen had told her aunt that she was considering applying to Humboldt State University after she graduated from high school. On the morning of November 25th, 1997, Karen spent some time on the phone talking to her mother. She was working on a school project that required her to speak to several different family members. 
Despite only being on Thanksgiving break, Karen was making plans with her mother for Christmas break. She'd be returning to Orange County to spend the holiday with her mom and brother. And she and her mom were filling out FAFSA paperwork so they could take some college courses together the following summer. And do you know, this is what tells me that Karen did not just walk away from her life. Because she was actively filling out this paperwork. Do you know how hard it is to fill out this paperwork? It takes forever. It is so much work. You would not go through all that trouble if you were like, going to basically pull a gotcha on everybody and be like, never mind, I quit. Like, yeah. I I never did that because I did not want to go to college. So I don't know how extensive this is, but. It is insane. I mean, and especially for, you know, they make like 17, 18 year old kids fill most of this out themselves and like, or just our mom did, but um, it was really hard. It was like doing your own taxes, what it felt like to me. It was just like so much paperwork and so many things and you have to go through all the stuff. And that was like online was like not as easy as it is now. And I don't know, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure this part wasn't online, but um, it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot. That afternoon, Karen was helping out her aunt at her store, Annie's Shoes, which was located at the Bayshore Mall. Karen was scheduled to work that afternoon at the Coastal Family Development Center, and her Aunt Annie had asked her, do you need a ride to the daycare from here? And Karen was like, no, it's a beautiful day out. It's only a mile to get to work. I'll just walk. It's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. So she left the mall around 2.45 p.m. And another thing to mention about Karen is she was never late to work. She never missed work. She was not a person who would no call, no show. She's dependable. She was responsible. Like, Mm -hmm. yes. Even in middle school, her maturity was very evident. You know, she's a very responsible person. Um, And she took a lot of pride in her job. She took a lot of pride in her schoolwork. Like, so that evening, Annie pulled up in front of the daycare to pick Karen up. But the staff let her know that Karen had never come into work that day. And Annie was immediately overcome with fear. Karen was, like we said, responsible. She never would have missed work without telling anyone. So that immediately in Annie, like, threw up red flags all over the place. And she's like, something happened to her. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no other explanation. Um, she was also really scared of the dark. And she would not have wanted to be out alone after nightfall. Because, I mean, remember, Karen was fine to walk places. But... She's not going to do that at night. I mean, she's fine to walk in the middle of the day, but Annie's picking her up at night, right? Like, she's not going to walk by herself. And unfortunately, despite the police being alerted quickly after it was found that Karen was missing, the 16-year-old was nowhere to be found. Police located a witness who said that he saw a car pull across Broadway Street and almost hit him just before stopping for a girl who he said matched Karen's description. The witness said that Karen may have gotten into a light blue four-door 1976-78 sedan, possibly a Ford Granada or a Mercury Monarch or maybe a Nissan. I don't recognize any of those cars. Mm -mm. I'm assuming they're big. Yeah, I'm not. I have no idea. Because 70s model. But at this point, they're like 15, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Are they all 20 years old? Yeah. Um. 
He recalled that the vehicle had California license plates and that Eureka was imprinted on the rear plate frame. The witness described the driver of the vehicle as a Caucasian male, approximately 60 to 70 years old with balding light colored hair. He was said to have green or gray eyes with a large nose that may have previously been broken. How? How is he seeing the eye color? Well, he almost hit him. Or he was walking and the guy almost yeah, hit him. True, so, so maybe close enough. But even if like I'm standing in front of somebody's car, I don't know that I can tell their eye color. I wouldn't honestly be able to either, but that's the only thing that I could reckon just from re- you know, like from yeah. hearing this. So I was like, well, I mean, maybe he was close enough. I don't know, but it seems I mean, like a lot of detail for Yeah, a maybe short being exchange. like that close, you can just tell that they're not brown, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. He was also wearing eyeglasses and a long-sleeved, light blue button-down shirt. This potential witness was never located. The distance between Eureka and Willow Creek, where Jennifer Wilmer was last seen heading towards, was less than one hour. Karen disappeared four years after Jennifer disappeared. There is quite a bit of speculation that Karen may have been a victim of the now-deceased murderer, Robert Durst. There are a few reasons for this. Number one, Durst had lived in the area at one point in his life, and a man who wrote a book on Durst, Matt Birkbeck, wrote that there were credit card records putting Durst in Eureka on the day that Karen disappeared. He also wrote that Karen reportedly volunteered occasionally at a homeless shelter that Durst frequented. Why did he frequent that? Why did he steal sandwiches? I don't know. Yeah, he was rich as fuck, right? The composite sketch given by the witness resembles Durst. With Durst now dead, it's unlikely that police will be able to determine whether Karen was actually a victim of Durst. But also, was he was he 60 to 70 years old in the 90s? See, that's what that's the one thing that really threw me for a loop because I was like, Robert Durst was old, don't get me wrong, but he's old a couple years ago. He's old yeah. when he passed away earlier this year, right? Like it's not Yeah. Uh, unless he was in his heavy disguise phase. Yeah, who knows how long he's been doing that. Because at that time, I remember in the in the jinx that they had talked about, or maybe around the Susan Berman murder. Um, he was in California. She was that in he was in California. Yeah, and they were because they were trying to place him there. Um, but he would have been what in his. 50s? I would say 50s, yeah. But I mean, like I said, it, he could have been he could have been disguised his, disguising himself because yeah, he and did if that. The, if the guy that they talked to was young, 50s you know, old, 50s old, and you might place that person much older than they are. You know, you might look at somebody. Well, and Robert Durst just he didn't take care of himself either. He looked older than he probably was, Mm -hmm. but yeah. But yeah, I do. I mean, he definitely would have been significantly younger. I don't know. Yeah. I I mean, I don't, I can't tell you. I don't know, but that's the only thing that I can make of it. Yeah. And at first I was gonna, like, at first I was thinking, well, like, Robert Durst didn't really kill people that he didn't know. That we know of. Yeah, that we know of. Because Susan Berman, his wife, who he obviously 100% killed. And his neighbor. And then the neighbor, yeah. So that person at least had a a connection. Yeah. To but, him. I mean, if 
she was working at the the homeless shelter and he came in, maybe he maybe he did have a connection to her. Yeah. Because we know Robert Durst, if he killed her, it would be because she knew something that he thought was going to put him in a bind, right? Mm-hmm. Like when he feels like he's backed into a corner, he's going to kill you. Right. Uh, again, I say, you know, there's a third option there. I think so. There are other choices available to us, not just like every time somebody is like, hey, didn't you? And then he's like, killed you. Like, right. We don't have to do that. But oh, that's what he did. Yep. That's exactly what he did. Okay, so Christine Lindsay Walters was born on August 8th, 1985 in Wisconsin. She lived in Deerfield, Wisconsin, and was studying botany and ethnobotany at the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point. She was described as a young woman who was down-to-earth, friendly, and a hard worker. She was known as being independent and self-assured. Christine loved being outside in nature, as well as doing Pilates and yoga. And before her disappearance, Christine held multiple jobs, including working on an organic farm and teaching yoga and Pilates. A college friend said that Christine would, wanted to experience everything. When deciding what to study in college, she had a difficult time looking at everything between anthropology to Spanish to botany to arts. In the summer of 2008, 23-year-old Christine traveled to Portland, Oregon to visit some friends while on break from school. She planned on returning to Wisconsin after a few weeks and continuing her studies in the fall, but while she was in Portland, Christine made a sudden decision to move to California with friends she met. That is adventurous. That is, what's the right word I want to use? Rash? I don't know. It's like, I can't, I'm not a fly by the sea or pantser. That's not who I am. I would need to think on that for a little bit. I don't know. That, that's just wild yeah, to me. If I was her mom, I would be like, okay, I I want you to do things that are interesting to you and I want you to live your life. Um, Maybe not this one, though. Right. Like, with You're, friends you just met. You just met them. Yeah, we don't we don't know these people and like you're you've got a lot of roots here, you know? Like yeah. That would scare me. It would scare me too. In September of 2008, she moved to Humboldt County. After this move, her mother and Nita said that something seemed to change. Initially, Christine called home a lot. She told her mother that she was enjoying herself. She was making friends. She was interested in a community that she'd been introduced to called the Green Life Evolutions. And since then, this group, which was often referred to as cult-like, has been disbanded. And her mom was worried that Christine might have been too trusting of the people that she was meeting. Anita and Christine were super close. And Anita said later that her daughter didn't understand the culture in California and that worried her. Anita said that her daughter's phone calls home became less positive and more concerning as time went on. In late October, Anita asked Christine if she'd come home at least just for a little bit. And Christine responded that she couldn't return yet, that she was still on a journey and needed to follow her path. Mm. I know. On November 7th, 2008, Christine participated in a tea ceremony at the Green Life facility. The ceremony used a South American hallucinogenic and was led by a shaman. About 20 people participated in the ceremony, and it was described as, quote, mystical and psycho-spiritual psychedelic trip that can bring visions, self-realization, and commonly violent purging or vomiting. 
That doesn't sound fun to me at all. Yeah. No. And you just like, on this stuff, you just like trip for a really long time, like multiple hours, just tripping balls and barfing. Now, now I have, I've never experienced, I'm going to say a hallucinogenic. I don't, I don't think that I've ever done anything like that because I don't think personally that would be fun for me because I am a very anxious person. I would ruin the trip. Everybody could be having the time of their lives. And I would be like the one that was curled up in a ball being like, but what if we don't make it through this? And, you know, like I would just ruin it for everybody. I would just ruin it. Exactly. That's what I would do too. Yeah. I don't know what that's like, but I don't know how, how, what's the right thing? The self-realization, that sounds great. I I enjoy some self-realization, but that's not appealing enough for me to be like, oh, and violent vomiting? Mm -mm. Mm Mm-mm. Yeah, if I'm gonna like find myself, I want it to be like comfy. Yeah, kind of. Sure. And like enjoyable. Yeah. And, And not vomiting. That's probably the number one, like, I just don't want to be vomiting during it. Not on purpose. No. Yeah. No, no, no. But this type of tea ceremony, it's illegal in the U.S. And the tea consumed contained two different drugs, including one controlled substance. Those who were with Christine at Green Life said that she stayed with everyone, finally leaving by herself on the 11th. So the following morning, which is November 12th, a couple found Christine standing on the doorstep of their home, and they said that she was naked, confused, and covered in scratches. The couple called the police, who took Christine to St. Joseph's Hospital to be evaluated. They said that Christine appeared frightened and kept saying that someone was after her, but she wouldn't tell them exactly what happened. No serious injuries were found, and her blood test was negative for drugs and alcohol. She was still extremely vague regarding what had happened, but she said that she'd walked a really long way, and that there were demons who could hear her and were trying to get to her. Police gave her a ride to a nearby hotel where she made plans with her parents to fly back home, but Christine had lost her identification and she needed to get the appropriate documents to fly back. So during her phone call with her daughter, Anita said that she expressed paranoia. On November 14th, Christine was seen at the Copy Co. printing store in Eureka. Anita had faxed Christine a copy of her driver's license and social security card so that she could get access to her bank account and the DMV. At 1 p.m., Christine, wearing her pajamas, left the keys to her room at the hotel front desk. The owner of the copy store remembered Christine arriving around 3.30 p.m. wearing her pajamas and slippers. He said that she'd lost her wallet but acted very paranoid. And Christine then asked for directions to the DMV, which was about one mile away, and then left the copy store. And this was the last time Christine was ever seen or heard from. It's terrifying. This is terrifying. And Mm -hmm. I just want to point out, I'm sorry, maybe we've already talked about it, but Karen, her parents were like, you need to, you need to get out of this area because it's not safe for you here. We're going to, we're going to put you in an area that is much more safe for you. And then she goes missing and has never seen her heart from again. Like this is supposed to be safer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. And the, the drug, um, the tea ceremony had, um, or it was ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. I was going to yeah. say that. 
which contains harmine or harmine, which is legal in the United States, and then DMT, which is obviously a controlled substance. But it says ingesting ayahuasca causes vomiting, diarrhea, and hallucinations that can last up to 10 hours. It has been known to cause adverse reactions, including episodes of depression or mania in some people who are predisposed to mental illness. Um, I mean, See, and that could account for the paranoia. And well, that's what I was going to say, because I've heard of a lot of people that it takes them a really long time to like come down from everything when they do a hallucinogenic like that. Like it just takes a really long time. And maybe she was just feeling the after effects of like, she couldn't shake the paranoia. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's so sad. It is. Okay, so now we're going to talk about two more women. Uh, Sheila Cheryl Franks was born on July 19th, 1976. There's not much published about Sheila's personal life. However, she was a divorced mother who was living in the town of Fortuna, California, with a local man, 43-year-old James Eugene. Jones. He went I by feel Jim like Jones. I was going to say, I feel like that's very generous to call him James Jones because he's Jim Jones. And you know what I say about Jim Jones? No matter who you are, you're fucking nuts. Okay. Jim Jones, all the Jim Jones. That's not true. But the, uh, to, uh, these two. I've met, I've heard about two, both of them bad. Yep. Both of them bad. Yep. Jones said that on February 2nd, 2014, sometime during the evening, 37-year-old Sheila went out for a walk and never returned. Did not happen. It didn't Did happen. happen. No. Her older sister, Melissa Wallstrom, said that Sheila and Jones had been dating for several months. There are also reports that Sheila was last seen in Eureka in January, um, which... Maybe just the last time that she was seen by anybody other than Jim Jones. Um, on March 3rd, 2014, Sheila's mother reported her missing to police in California. Normally, Sheila was very consistent about talking to her son on the phone or over text, but none of her family had been able to get in touch with her. Ten days later, Fortuna Police forwarded the missing persons report to Humboldt County Sheriff's Office. 23-year-old Danielle Nicole Bertolini moved away from her home in Maine to California in 2013. She had lost her son and was looking for a new start. Dealing with grief and change, Danielle felt like she had lost her direction in life. On February 9, 2014, Danielle was seen in the Swains Flat area of California, which... Guessed it's in Humboldt County. She was reportedly getting a ride into town and hitched a ride with a local man. This man was also the last man who had seen Sheila Franks alive. Was it Jim Jones? It was Jim Jones. See, bad egg, man. He's a bad egg. He's a mondo bad egg. I mean, this is only days after. He's a rotten Sheila egg. Sheila up and disappears. Mm-hmm. I mean, on February 19th, Danielle's family filed a missing persons report on her, offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to her return. With both women having been seen with Jones just prior to their disappearance, authorities felt confident that the two cases were related. However, they didn't really have enough to hold him on anything. Um, even disregarding the connection with 
you know, Jones, Sheila, and Danielle shared a lot of similar qualities. They were both young blonde women with blue eyes. They had similar builds. Both had left their families in hometowns and were in California looking for something different. So they didn't have a lot of connections within the community. With the connection made between Danielle and Sheila, the families of the two women combined forces to search for their missing loved ones. Jones had said that he had dropped Danielle off near her house and just had no idea like where she went after that. Like, Naturally. She made it home fine to me. I don't know. Right. Danielle just, I just dropped her off somewhere and then Sheila, she just walked away. Yeah. And convenient. <laughs> Sheila, her sister found like, if Sheila was just going to take a, walk like presumably it wouldn't have been a very long walk and she would have come back but she left everything at her at the house her, her purse, purse her cell there, phone her yes phone. Yeah, all those things were there you would take something with you her wallet was there and if she's just walking away from her life she would have taken those things with her she would want to have a vehicle where she could get somewhere else She'd want to have money on her so that she could obviously pay for things. She didn't well, bring any of that shit with her. And another weird aspect to the whole thing is that her sister found all of these things in a storage unit. How did it get there? And Did I, Jim Jones put it there? Right. Yeah. Why would all that stuff be in the storage unit? Mm-hmm. Because it seems like... If you've put it in a storage unit, you know. She's not coming back for it. Yeah. You have no use for it, right? You put stuff in a storage unit that you're not going to need for a long time or ever. At that point, it might just be sentimental, just memories. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. On March 9th, 2015, a human skull was found along the Eel River, which runs through Humboldt County. It was later confirmed to belong to Danielle. Unfortunately, no further remains of hers were found. A press release from Danielle's family said that in their initial searches, they found an item of Danielle's that led them to believe that she had been murdered. There is no further information regarding what that item was. In June of 2014, Sheila's family was notified that a femur bone had been discovered downstream from where Danielle's skull was found. The DNA of the femur matched to Sheila Franks, and no other remains of Sheila's have been found either. It's awful. Uh, Jennifer Wilmer, Karen Mitchell, and Christine Walters are still missing. While Danielle Bertolini and Sheila Franks are considered to be deceased, no further remains have been found, and we don't know what happened to them. I mean... (laughs) There's reason to believe that Jim Jones had something to do with it. A lot of reason to believe that, I think. But they have nothing that is tying him to, or that they can arrest him yeah. for. They don't have, and even if, even if they did find like DNA from Danielle in his car, he admits he admitted, that she was in it. Yeah, that she was in it. So unless they found like a significant amount of blood or something. You know, that's not enough. So, like, it's not like he is like, I've never met her, and then they find her DNA in his car, you know? So, (sighs) nobody has been arrested in connection with the disappearances or murders of the Humboldt Five. And you know what else? Jim Jones had a connection to Karen, too. He hung out 
like years before with like somebody that was friends with her, somebody like they were in like similar the same social circle, circles. right? Yeah. Okay. And he knew her. See, something is going on with Jim Jones, 100%. But I, I don't know. Uh, we don't know. We don't know as always, but what about the other two? You know, like mm-hmm. Jennifer and Christine. What about them? And it's been so long at this point since they've been missing. All of them have been missing. It's like, yeah. Are we going to figure any of this out? I wonder what the, what the other item is that they found. Yeah. I do believe because they found a human skull away from the body. I know that they think that in the case of Jennifer and Sheila, that they were possibly murdered and dismembered. Mm-hmm. And because they've only the found place, scattered. Yeah. Wasn't the place that they were found have some connection to Jim Jones as well? Um, I feel like I read, I read a bunch of articles and now I'm mixing things together, but I feel like I read that it was like close to where he lived or something. I can't remember. Or yeah, close to where know. he worked or, well... It may have been close to where he worked because I know in a lot of stuff that I read, they always called him a sawmill worker. Huh. Yes. 100%. Which, Torella, please, please do your sawmill impression. Yeah. So just very short story about the sawmill. Um, We have a sawmill here too. I guess they're everywhere. And um, I needed some wood for something to build a project I was working on. And dad tells me, Miss KB, he says, just call over to the sawmill ask for that kind of wood because it was kind of what Lowe's didn't sell and he'll get it ready for you. And I was like, just call the sawmill and ask for it. He's like, call, call the phone number and go ask him for it. I was like, okay. So he gives me the number and I call the number and I hear a noise on the other end of the phone and he goes, and I was like, And I just sat there in shock and he was like, and I was like, are you saying sawmill, sir? And so I just hung up and I told dad, I called dad and I was like, uh, this is what happened when I called. Somebody answered the phone and said this and he just busted out laughing. And I was like, <laughs> I you knew that so was coming. <laughs> That's just... what he did. <laughs> This is so funny. Dad (laughs) got you on that one. He fucking got me on that one. Oh, my God. So I remember reading about Jim Jones being a sawmill worker. They made a big damn deal about that. And like a lot of the articles and like, and it's like, you know, they would post his mug shots or whatever, you know, sawmill worker arrested for this because he's been in and out of jail for other stuff. Um, He's always had uh, tumultuous and violent relationships with women. Um, Sheila's sister said that she felt like Sheila was being abused. She told her sister that she wanted to leave him, that they were in the process of like breaking up, but they were still living together because at that time she didn't really have anywhere else to go. Yeah. And also it just didn't seem that she would at the time of day that he said it happened. It just seems like a weird time for her to be like, well, go for a walk now. Like, right. 
I don't know, just none of it made sense. Her stuff was in a storage unit. Yeah, there's a lot there that just does not add up to me. But I definitely think that... And what I watched on it, they... um reporter asked, is he... Is Jim Jones a suspect? And he was like, he's a person of interest. But I don't know what... Yeah, they won't call him a suspect yet. They won't call him a suspect. And they, as far as I could tell, haven't updated any of that to include him as a suspect Mm -hmm. or dismiss him as a person of interest. So did they ever, I couldn't find, did they ever even get like a search warrant for that house that they lived in together? Like, it doesn't seem like they did that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I I don't know. I've, I've never seen it mentioned anywhere in what I've read. I mean, it is an ongoing investigation and the investigators are very clear about that. They're like, we're not going to be able to tell you everything. We can't. It's ongoing. So you're going to be able to get some information, but we don't know you everything because we don't want to fuck it up. So, right. I understand that. But I just, I don't know if they were able to execute a search warrant or anything like that. Um, I don't know. It's all very sad. I, I mean, I, I personally don't think that they're all necessarily connected. I mean, they happened, you know, decades apart. They're connected in the sense that they're in the same area. And most of the women did look kind of similar. Um, I definitely think Sheila and Danielle were. I do too. Absolutely. Connect. I mean, they were found in the same place. Mm-hmm. Last they seen by the same person. A couple of days after each other. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's sad. It's just so sad. It is. It's a really sad one. Um, that's all we got. You guys let us know what you think happened. Um, if you have any theories or anything like that. Yes. Let someone know, but thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. we love you and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Okay. You guys, um, it's arguably the best part of the episode where we get to a thank people who are patrons of the show and B, book their names up. Yay. Yay. It's my favorite time. Exactly. Um, we want to give a Hey Girl thanks to Lauren Bonzo, Lynn Chapel, Tanya Riles, Julie Culver, Gracie Lee, Renee Berger, Taylor Barton, Cece Mithy. Okay, this one just says Echo T Day. It did not have a different name, so hopefully you know who you are. Kayla Bailey, Jackie Rodriguez, Jill Carlo, Chloe Coyle, Emily Bloodworth, Hallie Broad, and Sydney June. Oh my gosh, thank you guys so much. If you want your very own name fucked up beyond all recognition, <laughs> then join our Patreon at the $10 level or higher. You get lots and lots of bonus episodes plus this. Yay. Yay. Thank you, guys. We love you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 